Okay, um, so welcome to the Earthquake Science Seminar for uh, March 2nd. Uh, so as a reminder, please uh, turn off your video and your audio during the talk so we can save bandwidth as our speaker is joining us from the UK. Um, so we don't have any announcements today. Um, and so uh, Dan has asked if, if you want to jump in and have a question during the talk, he's, he's happy to do that. So maybe um, raise your hand and I'll just... Uh, point of question if you have that, but we will be doing our question and answer uh, at the end of the talk too. So if you have questions throughout, feel free to leave them in the chat. Um, so I'll pass it off to Dave Lochner, who's going to introduce our speaker, uh, Daniel Faulkner from the University of Liverpool. Okay, well, uh, so it's my great pleasure to introduce Dan Faulkner, our speaker today. Dan's a professor of geology and geophysics at the University of Liverpool. And he's currently uh, head of the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Ecological Sciences at uh, Liverpool. Um, I've known Dan for a rather long time here, and I, I have to say I consider him kind of a kindred spirit in the high-pressure rock deformation experimental field. Uh, we, we share very many common interests in our research. Um, Dan's interests uh, include experimental rock deformation, fluid flow, uh, physical properties of fault zones, and uh, mechanics of earthquakes. So he leads currently, and for a while now, he's, he leads a, a world-class rock deformation and rock physics laboratory at the University of Liverpool. Um, he has a very impressive uh, publication record spanning all sorts of uh, issues related to faults and earthquakes. Uh, I won't dwell on this. I'll just mention, for example, uh, the study with Ernie Rutter that they published on the Carboneras Fault in Spain and how heterogeneity and mineral composition controlled fluid transport properties in this uh, in this fault zone, it, it's a very noteworthy study, and it just exemplifies the kind of careful work that Dan does. Um, he's uh, published, as I say, extensively on friction and permeability of fault materials. Um, uh, one of those that he's concentrated on is properties of clays in fault zones. Um, now I, I see that he's uh, shifting his focus some to looking at induced seismicity and uh, mechanical stability of faults subjected to fluid injection, which brings us to the topic uh, of today's talk, which the title is Frictional Properties. Uh, Frictional Properties Affect the Earthquake Size Distribution During Fluid Injection. So with that, Dan, take it away. Thank you very much uh, for that introduction, Dave. That's, uh, that's uh, some kind words there. And um, I'm just going to share my screen. Um, do that. Um, full screen. So, yeah, I'll just start by saying that. Um, I have given uh, one other seminar at Menlo Park in the past. It was when I was a PhD student uh, back in 1997. So um, it's been 25 years. So it must have been a really bad talk, I think, uh, to to uh, have that kind of period between one invite and the next. So I hope this one goes a bit better. 
But uh, yeah, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be able to to speak to you all. The, the, um, I think the Earthquake Science Centre is a fantastic collection of uh, of um, all sorts of um, um, you know uh, interested people in this subject area, and uh, it's uh, it's great to have the opportunity to be able to uh, to present today. So um, <clears throat> let me just uh, see if we can get a pointer as well. Um, all right. So yeah, I've, I've changed the title a little bit. So as I was putting this together, I've um, uh, been thinking just recently about um, the wider implications, not only for induced seismicity, but just uh, earthquake size distributions in general and how physical properties might affect those. So um, I will have a couple of slides just at the end, I think, uh, which, which uh, change direction uh, a little bit. But uh, of course, this is a study that uh, doesn't just involve me. Uh, in fact, um, it probably involves me <laughs> to, to a minor degree, I think, in comparison to many of the other characters that uh, are listed just, just here as well. So um, this work is uh, uh, part of a, a fairly big UK uh, project um, that was originally targeted at understanding um, uh, shale gas exploitation in the UK. But uh, um, I'm sure you all know that, that at least um, in the UK, that didn't really take off. Uh, and um, uh, a lot of our results, I think, are still very relevant for um, uh, just general fluid injection um, related to, to other industries apart from, from uh, shale gas as well. OK, so <clears throat> I'm sure I don't have to, to dwell too much on the uh, importance of, of this work, but um, uh, just to point out that um, that uh, Bill Ellsworth um, uh, produced this, this uh, graph uh, a few years ago now, which just looked at um, the rates of seismicity in the central US uh, and pointed out that um, since fluid injection started uh, in this area, that uh, the rates of seismicity have gone up significantly. So we know that fluid injection into the subsurface is triggering uh, more seismic events. And um, as I said before, it's not just shale gas, but um, uh, any industries related to the to the, the energy transition, I think, in the future, uh, so perhaps geothermal and uh, carbon capture and storage will um, be industries that have to grapple with this um, this issue of, of induced seismicity through fluid injection. So the things that we we'd like to know, I guess, uh, prior to to inducing into the subsurface are uh, what are the rates of seismicity, and you know perhaps more importantly, what what is the maximum size of event that we we might expect to see uh, once some um, um, injection starts so a couple of the classic examples here i think for where this has been a huge issue um, so the first one was the the magnitude 3.2 event in, in basel um, with a geothermal project there um, relatively small event but um, the the borehole there which runs between four and five kilometers um, in the, into the subsurface was drilled uh, right underneath the city. So um, there was a lot of people that, that felt this. And, and uh, um, when that event occurred, uh, that was really the, uh, the, the end of the, the, the geothermal project, I think, to produce power directly under the city. So more recently, um, you know, larger event in, in Korea, which was uh, again uh, suggested that this was related to a geothermal uh, project um, there that produced the, the magnitude 5.4 event. 
So, so this is the kind of outline of what I'd like to, to talk about today. So uh, I'll just introduce earthquake size distributions uh, and look at uh, our current state of knowledge, I think, for, for what controls these. And, and uh, the primary um, uh, mechanism or, or, or reason, I think, controlling factor is, is stress at the moment. So I'll just cover the background uh, for that. So the project that we've been working on, um, uh, a whole bunch of UK collaborators, is this one, um, or is this data set from the Horn River Basin in British Columbia, where um, it's a shale gas project again, uh, and there's some really nice uh, seismic data that uh, have, have come out from that, uh, that we can compare with, with um, uh, lab measurements from core that was recovered from uh, various boreholes in the subsurface there. So then uh, I'll just move on to, to A minus B values. Uh, and I know that uh, many of you will be very familiar with, uh, with this, uh, but I'll just cover the basics of that for those that, that aren't so familiar with it uh, and try to relate that to, to the seismicity a little bit. And then uh, finish up, as I said at the start, with uh, just thinking about how um, these results might uh, translate to, to um, Large, larger faults, I think, or, or I was struggling for uh, the term, I guess, to, to call this as well, but, but non-anthropological uh, uh, produced seismicity, so natural seismicity, um, although it's all natural, I guess, isn't it? So we'll finish up by just thinking about that. So first of all, um, earthquake size distributions, what do I mean by that? Well, if you have the cumulative number of, of, of earthquakes uh, along this axis just here on this graph uh, plotted against their magnitude, then we tend, uh, we tend to see this linear relationship in, in log linear space just here. Uh, and uh, the, the gradient of, of, uh, of the number of events versus uh, how big they are uh, is, the, is the B value. So, this is the, the you know the, the well-known Gutenberg-Richter relationship, um, where the B value globally, if you look at all events, is uh, around uh, one. Uh, this was also recognised by a couple of Japanese uh, researchers in the 1930s uh, as well. So it's sometimes known as the Ishimoto-Yida relationship as well. So I guess the question is really is is you know can we utilise these B values in some way to uh, give us some handle about what <coughs> what the maximum uh, event sizes that we might expect to see from uh, a fluid injection project at some point in the future. So, you know, if we can record um, the rate of, of, of uh, smaller events just here, so so determine determine the B value uh, at, at lower mag magnitudes. How well does that translate to being able to predict? Uh, the larger events that uh, are much less common, but but obviously going to have a much bigger impact, I think, for um, um, projects if, if they're going to be successful uh, and not cause uh, any um, danger, I think, to to local populations. So I won't dwell too much on that uh, that question, but um, there are a couple of papers that have suggested that um, it might be possible to to use these B values to predict uh, larger events. And one example. Um, is the, uh, the Backman paper just here, which again looks at the, that uh, Basel uh, event in, in Switzerland, um, the magnitude 3.4 uh, event. And um, looking back at the, uh, the seismicity prior to that, the, that largest event, uh, they uh, suggest that it is possible to have predicted it perhaps by, by the smaller uh, events that, that happened and their distribution. 
um, uh, before the large event occurred. So, you know, what's our current knowledge on, on what controls the B value? Um, so, if you look back through the literature, um, I think the, 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 the overriding uh, mechanism or, or control on, on B values is, is stress, just here too. So, uh, these are some uh, data from an, an early study done by uh, Chris Schultz in 1968, uh, just uniaxial um, compression experiments on solid cores of uh, westerly granite, although in his paper he, he, he covered uh, many different rock types. Uh, but uh, the data here from, from westerly granite on the left-hand side. And uh, these two um, sets of data that you can see in, in, um, in this uh, left-hand figure are these B values, so the, the, um, the, the event size against uh, the, the number of um, um, the event size versus the number of uh, events that occur um, are plotted for two different differential stresses just here as well. So a lower stress on the left-hand side and then a slightly higher differential stress on the right-hand side. And instead of magnitude, they've just used the maximum trace amplitude uh, of the acoustic emissions that they were recording in, in these uh, laboratory uh, data sets. So the, the thing to note here is that uh, when you go to uh, higher levels of differential stress, uh, the value uh, of, of, well, the B value, um, just here the gradient of these uh, decreases slightly, which tells us that uh, we start to get um, more large events at the expense of the smaller events as we, as we go closer to failure of, of these initially intact rock cores. So the Right-hand side just illustrates that. So there's a whole bunch of different um, rock types just here. Um, so we've got percentage of failure uh, stress of these uh, initially intact cores along the, uh, the bottom axis just there. And uh, just note that the B value plotted along the right-hand side there, the axis uh, is reversed just there. So you go to smaller values uh, as um, the percentage of the, the, the failure stress is, is uh, approached. So the B values, decrease so you get more of these larger events at the expense of smaller events as the, the stress level increases. So this is a pretty seminal study I think that still influences our, our view of, of, of uh, what controls B values even today I think. So those were um, initially intact cores of, of material as well so um, what about if we've got a pre-existing fault and we want to know uh, what the uh, distribution, size distribution of events are on a pre-existing fault. So I'm showing here just um, some, some, again, some lab data from double direct shear experiments where we've got uh, two fault zones uh, just here and some acoustic sensors recording uh, the traces just there. And um, again, if we, if we have a look at uh, the B value as a function of, of normal stress, then we see this decrease in value, uh, B value, as, as the normal stress is increased. And we know, you know, the friction coefficient is the shear stress divided by the normal stress. So as the normal stress increases in these experiments, then you also have to increase the shear stress uh, proportionally to, uh, to get these, these samples to, to slip and fail. And uh, this basically just illustrates again that, that this reduction in B value 
does seem to be related to um, you know the shear stress that you have to apply uh, to these model fault zones in order to 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 make them slip. So the right hand side again just illustrates the the the, the same uh, point just here uh, that uh, the 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 cloud of blue data just there is um, uh, um, for the the lowest normal stresses. So so we've got uh, fairly small shear stresses um, on 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 here. And the V-value uh, has this quite large range, uh, that, that shear stress. But as we uh, go to higher normal stresses and therefore have to apply higher shear stresses to those, um, the cluster of, of uh, V-values just there does, does decrease uh, with that increase in shear stress. So for both intact cores um, taken to failure and also kind of model fault zones, it seems that um, the recordings of, of acoustic data, these small events in these, these lab uh, experiments, um, does show uh, that, that there is a, a significant effect, I think, of um, um, shear stress uh, on the B value that you, you actually uh, record in, in the experiments. So apart from stress, um, Roughness of, of the fault also uh, plays a part. So uh, these are some data from uh, Thomas Goebel. And uh, he ran experiments on, um, on different types of fracture surfaces. So um, he, he had a cut um, uh, sample where the surface was polished. So a very smooth surface. Um, again, another saw cut where um, the surface was purposely roughened. And then a natural fracture surface as well, where initially an initially uh, intact core of uh, his material uh, was was um, uh, was taken to failure, and then um, and then slip along that um, that uh, fracture surface that was produced is is um, uh, is affected there just to, to see what the the difference in the, the B values are. So again, if we have a look at um, the magnitude of these versus the, the, the cumulative number, um, we get uh, the polished surface just here having the, the, um, the lowest B values and, and the fracture surface just here having the highest B values. So the polished surface has got quite a lot of small event, events relative to the larger events. And uh, the, fracture, the fractured surface, which is the roughest one of these ones, um, has um, the smallest B value, um, which um, indicates that um, we've got quite a lot of large events relative to, to the small events, which is intuitively what you would, you would expect, I think. OK, so we've looked at stress and we've looked at um, roughness for this. So I'll just move on to the, the study that we made, I think, which is to, to have a look at uh, material properties and how they might affect um, B values. So the area that we, we uh, collected samples from and, and uh, looked at sample, uh, uh, seismic sample, uh, sorry, seismic data sets is the Horn River Basin, which is in uh, British Columbia in Canada. So it's this um, hatched area just uh, at the top of the picture, just there. And um, it's a whole bunch of um, stratigraphy here, which uh, um, is basically being targeted for these three different reservoir horizons at about two kilometers depth. So uh, these are, are, are basically shales 
so they have different amounts of, of um, phyllosilicate content to them, so uh, clay content, uh, but they're all relatively organic rich, which is why they're being targeted for um, uh, shale gas exploitation. So lying above those are some, some, um, some organic uh, uh, poor uh, shales, um, just, just here, the, the Fort Simpson um, uh, formation. And underlying um, these three reservoir um, horizons are uh, dolomitic um, rocks as well. So uh, what's, the, what's called the Keg River formation uh, and, and they're, they're carbonate rich dolomitic. So there's been a number of wells drilled down to these three uh, different horizons. Uh, they've, been, um, they've been drilled along these reservoir units uh, and fluid injection taking place uh, in many stages to, to, uh, to frack these, these three units um, to produce uh, shale gas. And along with that, there's been a whole bunch of uh, uh, seismicity produced uh, and there's some fantastic microseismic data sets that arise from this. Well, there's my label for Horn River Basin. Oh, my apologies, I should have moved on to this slide. So this just shows a little bit more detail of, of uh, the stratigraphy that, that we work from. I think the nice thing about uh, this project is, is that we have some really quite um, um, nice variations in the three, well, in, in the, the range of lithologies that uh, um, where seismicity has been induced, I think, in this in this area. Uh, and it gives us an opportunity to compare, um, you know, a high resolution microseismic data set uh, with, um, you know, physical property measurements on these, these quite different um, horizons within uh, the stratigraphy in the, in the Horn River Basin region. Okay, so here's just a picture of um, of the three reservoir horizons. So these are occurring between about 1750 uh, and uh, two kilometers uh, below uh, the surface. We've got these three reservoir horizons again, the, the Evie formation, the Otter Park formation, and the Musqua formation. As I said before, we've got the Fort Simpson formation, which overlies these, and then uh, this Dolomitic uh, uh, region, the Keg River formation, underneath there. So in the whole project there were there were 10 wells that were drilled, um, 237 stages uh, completed injection and the microseismicity was recorded on, on three downhole microseismic arrays and overall there were over 150,000 uh, events recorded. Now, most of these uh, events are, are really quite small, so they, they range between magnitude uh, minus 2.4 up to um, about 1.5. Uh, and they, they're really nicely described, I think, in uh, Tom Kettlety's paper um, in uh, GJI in 2019. So um, if you want some more information on, on microseismicity, that's probably the place to, to look at. So you'll notice from the, the, the cloud of microseismicity just here that uh, um, at some stages during an injection, the, the seismicity migrated down into the underburden, so this Keg River, River formation. And it really nicely highlighted a couple of pre-existing fault planes, I think, uh, uh, in this region. And certainly the biggest events that were measured um, 
uh, in this project were, were recorded on, on these pre-existing faults down in, in the Keg River formation. So you can see that the, the, uh, the, the lighter colours here uh, picking out the, the, uh, the, the larger events, I think, as, uh, as you go down into um, the underburden. Okay, so you know, we did look at uh, all of the, the micro-seismicity that was recorded here as well, but um, I think if you want to understand the, the largest magnitude event or LME that can occur uh, in these regions, then we need to be focusing down on pre-existing fault structures. I think if we uh, are creating new faults or, or producing mode one fractures that, that are producing um, micro-seismicity, uh, they're only going to, to be fairly uh, small in, in size. And you know, if we're really worried about uh, bigger events occurring in, in any injection project, they're, they're almost certainly uh, going to occur on, on pre-existing fault structures. So since the lab data that we collected for these rocks, as I'll show you in a few slides time, uh, were basically simulated fault gouges, we we're interested in, in just looking at the seismicity that were, were occurring on pre-existing faults in, in this area. So we ran a, a spatial clustering analysis um, to identify the faults, first of all. So um, we looked at things that uh, uh, were clustering around uh, planar structures that were being illuminated by the micro-seismicity. And uh, we ran the analysis just on um, the seismicity that we thought were was occurring on, on pre-existing structures within the subsurface. So, um, you know, because we've got so many events here, we, we were able to do uh, a little bit more um, analysis of the data as well. So we, we kind of split up uh, the seismicity that, that we saw on faults uh, into the different uh, horizons, the stratigraphic horizons that, that occur within uh, the Horn River region. So these, these five units that we've got uh, that sandwich uh, the three reservoir units um, in, in the centre of them. So using the, the clustered uh, microseismic data, we used uh, no less than a, 100 events uh, to determine B values uh, at a range of different depths that went through all of these different uh, reservoir horizons. Okay, so here are some of the B values that uh, were derived from, from those data sets. Um, they're color coded according to, to the B value just here. So uh, the, the, the warmer colors just here are the ones with the lowest uh, B values. So these are predominantly occurring in, in that underburden unit, the dolomitic one. And we've got uh, higher values, uh, B values just, just here, uh, marked in, in blues and greens, uh, which predominantly occurred, I think, in those, um, those reservoir units, the three um, organic rich shales. Okay, so that kind of covers the uh, the, the seismic data sets that, that uh, we used for, for this analysis as well. And what we wanted to do was compare those B values that we measure um, as a function of depth through all of these different uh, lithological horizons with some lab measurements uh, of each of these uh, different um, horizons um, uh, from the lab. So this picture here just shows um, um, the arrangement of our, our, our lab experiments just here. So we used a, a kind of a, a, a direct shear 
assembly of the tracksuit vessel. So it has this kind of L-shaped design just here, and um, uh, we have our, our layer of, of crushed up um, simulated fault gouge uh, sandwiched in here, which um, is connected through to our pore fluid system using these uh, sintered uh, porous stainless steel discs. And um, the normal stress to that simulated fault is provided by um, the confining pressure which acts on the, on the outside of the jacket uh, shown just here as well. Um, so in order to maintain the, the, the normal stress uh, on the fault during the experiment, we just have to keep the confining pressure constant. And the shear stress in this case is, is applied just by uh, axial loading. So axial loading causes shear on the, the simulated fault and uh, that's accommodated by these um, these rubber spacers, uh, silicon rubber spacers um, in this region just here and just here. And um, the, the arrangement of everything, I guess, or, or, or the things in reality there are just shown on the right hand, oh, sorry, on the left hand side there, these rubber spacers are um, our direct uh, sliders and the PVC jacket. So we are able to um, introduce and maintain pore fluid pressure uh, as well as uh, keep the, the, the normal stress on these model fault zones uh, constant during uh, the experiments. Okay, so for those of you that aren't so familiar, and, and it can be quite confusing because I've already talked about B values with regard to the seismic data, which describes uh, the, the, the magnitude, uh, the size, um, the size distributions of, of, of events. Um, but unfortunately, um, because these are two different fields, uh, we, we're going to use B for uh, a different parameter now. Um, so, so bear in mind that uh, we've got B values for the seismic data, and um, I'm going to talk about uh, another parameter, uh, A minus B, uh, which is related to uh, the frictional stability of uh, these experimental fault zones. So in experiments, um, we typically uh, load up our samples, uh, shown on this uh, bottom left graph just here. Um, we get yield of these, um, and, and then we start to accommodate uh, sliding along our uh, simulated uh, fault layer. So we vary the the, uh, the sliding velocity in these experiments. So uh, we step step up in this region just here uh, to have um, sliding velocities of, of three microns per second. And then we have down steps as well. So uh, these data here are where the sliding velocity uh, was reduced to a tenth of, of that. So 0.3 microns per second. And you can see that um, we get variations in the, the dynamic friction coefficient uh, that happens as a result of these uh, changes in sliding velocity. And this tells us something about the, the frictional stability of, of, of these model fault zones. So that's illustrated in the top right just here. Um, typically what we see as we go from uh, slow sliding to fast sliding is we see a direct uh, effect, which is characterized by this parameter uh, A. And then this decays over, over slip um, to a new steady state uh, sliding velocity. Uh, and that, um, that time dependent um, or slip dependent uh, behavior is described by this parameter B. 
So um, the equation just here just tells us that the the, the shear resistance, um, the, the shear stress required it required for for um, dynamic sliding of our experiments, is basically the friction coefficient times the normal stress. But in the rate and state uh, framework, we've got these two additional uh, parameters here: what's called the direct or rate dependent effect, and the evolution or, or time dependent effect uh, just here as well. So they just modify. Um, um, the, the overall shear resistance. So the important thing here is we're not going to worry too much about the, 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 uh, the slip dependent uh, behavior just here, but um, what we are going to think about is the, is the uh, overall change when you get to steady state sliding. So if I just go to show uh, this equation just here, which is a little simpler, uh, the steady state friction coefficient is uh, related to um, the previous uh, steady state sliding velocity at a, at a slower or, or faster velocity. Um, plus this parameter a minus b um, times the log of, of, of um, the two uh, sliding velocities that, that we use in the experiments. So a reference velocity and your, your new sliding velocity just here. So um, Overall, what, what we end up with is, is if A minus B term, uh, is, comes out to be less than zero, this tells us that uh, our fault zone as it slides faster um, ends up with a new steady state uh, strength, which is uh, less than it was before. So this is called uh, velocity weakening, and it leads to potentially unstable uh, behavior uh, in, in these gouges. So that would be the, the situation that's illustrated just here, where uh, the new steady state sliding velocity just here, when we've gone to uh, our new uh, faster sliding velocity, uh, it tends uh, ends up being less than it was uh, before we started at the, the, the slower slip velocity. So overall, um, once we reach steady state, there's a strength reduction as we increase the slip velocity. So that gives the potential for, for unstable slip behavior. So um, we, we do get situations where um, A minus B uh, is zero or, or, or greater than uh, zero, uh, and this results in velocity strengthening. So our fault essentially gets stronger uh, the faster that we, we slide it, which is intrinsically stable. So some of our lab data down here just uh, illustrates what we, we measured for uh, the different uh, horizons within um, the, the Horn River uh, site. Um, so it's color coded just here. So uh, this is the, the stratigraphic sequence with the uh, dolomitic layers at the bottom, then these three organic rich shales in the center just here, uh, and then the overburden here, which is in, in blue. So you can see that the, the lowest strength um, uh, resistances that we saw were, were measured in the, the overburden just here. So that blue corresponds to the blue uh, in, the, in the lab data. And you might be able to see there as well that, that as the velocity goes from, from fast to slow sliding, uh, that we've got very velocity strengthening behavior. So we would expect to, to uh, see, or we would expect stable sliding behavior, I think, in, in uh, this uppermost um, stratigraphic horizon. For all of the, the other um, uh, stratigraphic horizons that we've got uh, just here, the, um, the friction, coefficient, uh, uh, friction coefficients are quite similar. 
ranging between about 0.55 up to 0.65, just above that maybe. And um, again, we, we, we see a slightly different behavior, but we typically see um, velocity neutral or um, mildly velocity strengthening uh, behavior associated with, with these horizons. So bringing these two different data sets together now, um, I mentioned earlier that we run this cluster analysis to look at seismicity on fault structures. Um, and the central panel that you're seeing there are those, those faulting events. So events that were uh, clustered around uh, planar structures or fault structures uh, within the subsurface. So as we go down uh, in depth just, just here, um, the, the data joined by the solid black line are the B values that we derived uh, from the microseismic data set. Um, so these are all the seismic uh, data. Um, and plotted on top of those are the lab measurements that we made for these different stratigraphic uh, horizons. So these A minus B uh, data. And there's a reasonable uh, correlation there, I think, of um, uh, the frictional properties that you can see and uh, the measured uh, B values that, that uh, were derived from the microseismic data. So if you take uh, all events, um, so the ones clustered around faults, plus all of the, the, the other events that happened within the reservoir horizons, then you really don't see any correlation at all between uh, the lab measured data and the B values that we've got there. And if we take from um, all of the, if we take away the the uh, defaulting events and, and just have a look at um, you know, what I view, I guess, as, as the fracturing events that uh, you see just there, again, we see a, a poor correlation between these. So it does seem that, you know, when we isolate just defaulting events and have a look at the B values of just defaulting events, uh, there does seem to be a nice uh, correlation there between um, these frictionally, uh, the, these measurements of uh, frictional stability from the lab and the measured B values in the subsurface. Okay, so if A minus B, you know, a frictional a material parameter essentially for a frictional stability uh, is a contributor uh, to determining what the, um, uh, the seismic B value is, these, these magnitude distributions, then you know, it's worthwhile asking what controls A minus B. So previous work has shown that, that the mineralogy of gouges does seem to, to play a part just here as well, and particularly the, particularly the uh, phyllosilicate content of, of, of fault gouges. So this is uh, some, some compiled data by Matikari, uh, published a few years ago now, just showing how the strength of, of uh, different um, gouges uh, varies uh, and all of the low strength gouges just here uh, are phyllosilicate rich um, uh, lithologies in general uh, and we've got more framework silicates uh, uh, making up the strongest uh, gouges I think just here with normal kind of Biley range uh, friction coefficients associated with them. So that we probably knew already um, but what's interesting just here is that uh, uh, A minus B values, or this, this frictional stability parameter, uh, is also plotted for these same um, uh, uh, gouges just here as well. So um, 
we see that the phyllosilicate rich gouges uh, typically tend to have these velocity strengthening uh, characteristics associated with, with stable fault slip. And uh, up here in this range, just here, these uh, largely framework um, uh, silicate uh, rich gouges uh, have not only the highest strength, but they have uh, negative A minus B values, which give us, gives us the potential for unstable uh, fault slip just, just there. So here's a, another data set uh, for some more uh, shale gas uh, areas as well. So um, there's, there's uh, data here from the, the Barnet Shale, Hainesville and Eagleford uh, um, shales, which were published by uh, Arjun Kohli and Mark Zoback uh, a few years ago now. And they show this uh, similar pattern just here as well. So we've got clay content plus total organic carbon um, as a weight percent plotted along the, the bottom axis here, the x-axis. Uh, and We've got friction coefficient and uh, A minus B, this frictional stability parameter, uh, plotted on this graph. So again, as the clay content increases, the strength drops, so the friction coefficient decreases. Uh, and A minus B uh, is, is negative, so velocity uh, weakening uh, at low clay contents. And as we increase the clay content, uh, then they transition into uh, velocity strengthening um, type behavior. Okay, so one other thing that uh, is, is maybe worth mentioning is, is uh, fluid pressure also seems to have uh, a small influence. I don't think as much as the, the, um, uh, the mineralogical composition of these gouges, but, but fluid pressure does seem to play a role uh, in um, affecting A minus B. So, the data we're looking at here are, are all from uh, the same fault gouge. So what we're doing is just playing with conditions uh, just here as well. And these different lines that we've got from the blue to the red are um, different fluid pressures that we've got within uh, our experiments just here. So the blue is uh, a very low pore fluid pressure uh, and the red there is, is a higher uh, pore fluid pressure. But what we've done here is we've kept the effective normal stress uh, the same uh, for all of these different experiments. And uh, I hope, hopefully what you can see from these data is that um, at low fluid pressures, we seem to have smaller values of A minus B. And uh, the effective normal stress actually has not much of an effect at all on, on um, uh, the value of A minus B. So we can change the effective normal stress and it doesn't seem to have much of an effect on A. A minus B, but if we increase the pore fluid pressure, it tends to stabilize these gouges by increasing the A minus B value as you go to, to ever higher uh, pore fluid pressures. But you know these 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 changes in A minus B, although there is, is there's, there's certainly a trend there, I think uh, they're relatively small uh, changes that we're seeing, but but it should still be something we factor in, I think, into our, our um, uh, analysis just just here. So the right hand side just shows the, the same data really just as, as a, a function of, of, of uh, lambda just here which is the ratio of the pore fluid pressure to uh, the normal stress in this case uh, and again uh, the different colors here correspond to uh, constant um, pore fluid pressures. So um, again not much change if we just focus on the green uh, data just here not much change really uh, in A minus B as you 
increased uh, lambda, this, this uh, uh, pore fluid pressure factor, because we're keeping the, the pore fluid pressure constant. But as we step up to ever higher uh, pore pressures, so for example, uh, the orange data and, and the red data just there, um, we do just seem to have this, this small increase in A minus B associated with that uh, increase in pore fluid pressure. So again, pore fluid pressure having an effect on A minus B, but, but uh, overall the, 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 um, uh, this lambda factor, uh, if, it, if it involves just changing the, uh, the effective normal stress, that doesn't seem to have much of, of an effect. Okay, so don't go away yet, because although this is uh, uh, conclusions, it's kind of conclusions just for the first part of, uh, of this talk. Um, so just on the Horn River Basin uh, data, so it seems that injection produces seismicity across um, a range of these, these lithologies, which allow us to, to calculate the, the B value, the seismic B value. And it does seem that uh, these frictional parameters measured from lab data uh, appear to, to, to correspond quite well to uh, these, these seismic B values. And also just to, to recap, A minus B is primarily controlled by mineralogy, but possibly also uh, fluid pressure as well. Okay, so I just want to spend the uh, last few minutes really just thinking about uh, earthquake size distributions on, um, on larger natural faults rather than ones uh, that um, uh, have been uh, reactivated or stimulated by fluid injection in, in the subsurface. So um, we'll start with this diagram here, which is, is basically just showing a, a depth diagram of the Parkfield, re uh, uh, Parkfield region of the San Andreas Fault. And um, Shaw, Shaw Lemmer and, and Vima uh, a few years ago um, processed the um, uh, microseismic data uh, actually resolved onto the fault plane to, to map out regions of, of different B values uh, in the Parkfield region. So you can see that we've got uh, some, some areas um, at depth just, just here uh, associated with uh, the source region of the, the magnitude 6 event in 2004 uh, with quite low B values uh, around 0.5. Uh, and there are some regions in red just here where we've got uh, very high values uh, high B values uh, stretching up to about 1.3. Now, um, you know, while we can pick out some of these differences, I think, on, on a fault like this, um, uh, we can only speculate about what controls these different B values. And certainly, uh, Shaw, Lemmer and Vima uh, proposed that this was just mapping out different stress levels uh, on the San Andreas Fault, I think, in the Parkfield region. And, um, you know, I think uh, our work has suggested that, that it's maybe not just stress that, that uh, bringing about these changes, but uh, it could also be uh, mapping out different uh, material properties on, on the fault. And, and um, um, you know, maybe we've got regions here of, of low B values, which would be associated with uh, very low values of A minus B or negative uh, values of, of A minus B, which would um, be velocity weakening, uh, which would favor unstable slip. And, and that certainly seems to uh, fit with the idea that um, this is the source region for uh, the, the uh, 2004 magnitude 6 event. Okay, so as we go to, to larger events, um, you know, if we want to think about uh, um, more than just these really you know, tiny micro seismic events that we've been 
thinking about just here. Um, is A minus B the most appropriate uh, parameter that we, we need to think about? You know, A minus B in lab experiments is measured at very, very slow slit rates. So it's kind of appropriate to uh, earthquake nucleation uh, rates. And I think once we get um, a larger event up and running, uh, then uh, we know that, that A minus B isn't really the appropriate parameter to, to analyze uh, larger events. So this is a well-known plot which, which just uh, maps out uh, slip rate just here. So going from um, kind of nucleation rates and, and most of the data that I've shown you uh, up to now uh, were kind of measured in, in this region just here. Uh, and we know that as we as we increase uh, our, our slip rate on faults um, and we've been able to produce data like this by, by running high velocity friction experiments on, on uh, uh, machines over the past 20 years or so, we know that once we, we reach slip rates which are commensurate with um, dynamic rupture, that we get all sorts of thermal effects uh, starting to weaken uh, faults and reduce the, the coefficient of friction um, at um, higher slip rates. Then so just check in, so we have about uh, 10 minutes left. 10 minutes, okay, so good. That's, uh, that's fine. So I think I've got a couple more slides and then, then I'm, I'm done. Right. Okay, so we know we get these dynamic weakening uh, effects. So maybe dynamic weakening is the thing that we should be looking at uh, to try to understand um, um, B values which, which uh, incorporate much larger events. Um, so this is a, a modeling study that was done um, with uh, the Caltech group, so Valer Lambert and Nadia Lapusta. Um, so it's just to, to illustrate to you just there, if we look at uh, a slip displacement in a high velocity lab friction experiment, uh, and we have a look at the evolution of the, the strength, the coefficient of friction, then this drop from the peak strength down to residual sliding strength just here uh, is illustrative of, of the, the dynamic weakening coefficient. And this is very different to the A minus B that we looked at uh, in, in the uh, previous part of the talk just here as well. The magnitude of dynamic weakening is, is much, much greater. So the, the graphs that we've got just here, if we have a look at the ones in blue, um, from the modeling studies, this just looks at the B value and how the B value varies as a function of uh, more and more efficient dynamic weakening. And we can see that, uh, you know, in these uh, fault models, these dynamic fault models, the B value decreases uh, with, with greater uh, dynamic weakening, the, the more dynamic weakening we build into the model, which is the same kind of story really as the one that we have relating B values to uh, A minus B parameters for the small events. So um, this graph just here just, just illustrates uh, th this idea of, of um, um, uh, dynamic weakening and how this might affect things. So um, the gray line just here, this is a, basically we're looking at a fault plane here. We're looking at the, the, the pre-stress that exists on this fault plane, illustrated by this gray line. So this is the shear stress that exists um, pre-exist on, on the fault. And uh, what we'll do is we'll, we'll just uh, um, uh, we'll just run this model, um, which which basically loads loads up the model and produces a, an event which nucleates on the right-hand side just here. Uh, and it has dynamic weakening built into that. And uh, it just illustrates that the dynamic weakening allows uh, the fault to rupture 
all the way um, through uh, this, this model just here, even through the regions where the pre-stress is, is very low. So uh, I'll just run that. Here we go. So whether or not we get a big event, whether or not we get rupture propagation, uh, is determined by, first of all, the heterogeneity uh, of our fault, okay, which might be, for example, in this case, it was uh, pre-stress, okay, and, and uh, some of these uh, pre-stress areas might have been enough to an arrest a rupture, which, which arrest a rupture, which doesn't have quite so much dynamic weakening associated with it. Um, also, this heterogeneity uh, might be brought about by um, material properties as well. So uh, at the ends of this model, we've got deepening uh, regions. And uh, fault roughness is another uh, uh, source of heterogeneity, I think, which uh, in nature can certainly arrest, uh, arrest uh, ruptures. But again, this is just to illustrate, I think, that, uh, that dynamic weakening, um, how efficient that is, uh, is, is another control, I think, on, on uh, how each of these heterogeneities might be overcome by uh, a propagating rupture. So th this raises some interesting questions about uh, seismically quiescent regions of, of uh, for example, the San Andreas Fault too. So we know in the region of the 19, uh, sorry, the 1857 uh, event just here that we've got very little seismicity uh, on the southern uh, part of the San Andreas Fault. Um, now, one explanation for, for, for these um, extremely low uh, B values um, and this lack of seismicity is that maybe uh, these big events are enough to, to rupture right the way through um, uh, these regions of, of the fault because there's extreme or enhanced dynamic weakening in, in, these, uh, in these regions. And you know another possibility is that, that, that we have uh, low stress in these regions as well, which is not producing much microseismicity in the interseismic period. Or it could be some combination of these two things producing this, this low B value. Okay, so just to, to give you some conclusions from this, uh, uh, this, this very brief second part of the talk, for larger faults, uh, B values might be an indicator, um, not, not in this case of uh, A minus B, which is kind of appropriate to, to smaller events, I think, because it's typically associated with, um, uh, you know, quite small uh, seismic events. Um, but, you know, for, for larger events, it might be the dynamic weakening that uh, that, that plays a part in, in controlling or, or dictating the, the B value that we see on, on these faults. So there is a, a possibility, I guess, that uh, very low B values uh, on larger uh, tectonic faults are a possible indicator of uh, maybe efficient dynamic weakening and low stress on those. And uh, just going back to, to this part just here on creeping faults, uh, these variations in B values that we saw, for example, in the Shawlemma uh, and VEMA data might be reflecting material property changes uh, as much as uh, uh, stress variations on, on the fault uh, in this case. So um, I'll leave it there and uh, thank you very much for your attention. Yeah, thank you, Dan. That was, that was awesome. Um, so I think we'll, we'll do questions now. Um, looks like Dave, you had a 
a longer question if you want to ask that yourself or I can just read it. Oh, we can. I, I guess I'll I'll just try uh, asking it here. Uh, the, the largest events uh, seem to be in the substrata in the uh, data set that you showed. Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. So uh, it may be that in the reservoir, in the reservoir, the stress level, the ambient stress level is lower and the substrata is supporting larger stress. So your largest events are tapping into a pre-stressed region that, you know, that you can't, you may not be able to get much large, much in the way of large events in the reservoir itself, but by triggering events in the substrata, you could potentially get much larger events. So how does that kind of, you know, comparison uh, fit into your argument of, of estimating the largest event from the B value? Yes, yes, that's true. So, I mean, I think for events that, so I have to say the Horn River data, the largest events that we're getting are, are magnitude 1.5. So they're, they're tiny events and they're, they're probably restricted to uh, reservoir horizons, I think, in that case. Uh, but you're exactly right. You know, what, what if we had a, a bigger event that stretched across these different reservoir horizons? Um, and that's more complicated. I think that would, you know, require modelling to 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 have a look at the propagation of those events. And and uh, uh, again, it may be, you know, dynamic weakening uh, and those parameters that we need to look at. But we also need to look at the interaction of one stratigraphic horizon uh, um, next to another one to, to see whether that would arrest or, or allow propagation of, of, of different events. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Really, really interesting. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, looks like uh, Nick's raised his hand, so if you want to unmute yourself. Yeah, thanks. Uh, that was a great talk, Dan, a, a real tour de force. I, I really, really like your um, your idea to think about material properties and that the material properties are probably controlling um, the details of the of the size frequency distributions. And um, I, just just one thing. I mean, there's some reasons. There's there's pretty well known reasons why the 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 strength, the the frictional strength, and the um, and a minus b go together. I mean, there's sort of theoretical or conceptual reasons for that have been known for a, quite a long time. But this this thing that you showed where you have a variation of of A minus B with the absolute level of pore pressure, that's that's a really interesting result. It isn't what you would expect at all. But I mean, by from effective stress theory, it, it shouldn't happen at all. And, and, and there's other people who have seen, I think, very closely related effects do you have a sort of a way of thinking about that physically? Like, how could that, how could that be? That's a really good question, um, Nick. Um, and I don't know whether I have an answer to, to that too. I mean, you know, we we dug through the literature to see whether we could uh, find um, anything because you know lots of people have done uh, varying pore pressure experiments uh, um, looking at uh, you know frictional parameters. Um, but really, there wasn't there wasn't a set of experiments that we could find where where you know effective pressure was held constant and, and independently, um, a fluid pressure was 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 varied. 
um, which is what prompted us to, to, to run these experiments, I think, which were done on some um, gouges that were drilled out of the Nankai uh, trough. Um, so, I, yeah, I, <laughs> I kind of skirting around your question here. I, I don't, I don't think I have an answer uh, really, Nick, as, as to what the physical explanation is. But, but uh, the data that, that we produced, at least, do seem to show this systematic variation and this increase in in um, um, A minus B with with increasing pore fluid pressure. Thanks. If you have any. If you have any ideas, let me know. <laughs> I do not. <laughs> I think actually David is the one person that's come up with an idea of why why uh, properties such as this might might vary as a function of, of actual absolute pore pressure. So maybe David can chime. Really, you, you better explain it for me. I've forgotten. <laughs> I think it was subcritical crack growth related issues, actually. Okay, um, looks like Steve Hickman has a question. Hi, hi, Dan. That was a great talk. And I um, really appreciate the nice overview in the beginning and fascinating results from the Horn River. So I have a question about the Horn River results. Um, all the seismicity was contained within the reservoir rocks or within the basement, very little in the overburden, and your A minus B, positive A minus B values were higher in the overburden. Do you think there was no fracture propagation into the overburden at all? Is there any evidence for slow slip events or hydrofracking events into the overburden, which would be relatively poor seismic radiators? Or do you mm -hmm. think the real the brittle damage was really constrained to the reservoir rocks and the pre-existing faults in the underburden? Sure, that's a good question. So we've looked at whether or not those pre-existing faults uh, would the timing of those and whether they would be expected to stretch into the overburden um, and they should be there I, you know i think uh, um, faults that size uh, shouldn't just stop at the, the top of the, the reservoir horizon so so i think the faults are there but i, I don't think we're seeing them seismically um, and, and that does seem to fit with the, the fact that we've got strongly velocity strengthening properties i think in, in the overburden just there um, I don't know enough about the seismic data set. I have to hold my hands up uh, to to say whether there are, are uh, whether there's any uh, hints or evidence for for slow uh, events that that may be propagated into into uh, those regions. Um, so I I probably have to defer to my to my uh, uh, collaborators. I think on on that and, and okay. ask whether they they saw stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I was. I mean, I know some of the work by Scott Phillips and Lee House and others where they see when they propagate hydrofracs across. You know, hard shales and soft shales, they see aseismic propagation between seismic layers. And I was thinking the same kind of thing might be happening there. And one other comment about the central San Andreas, of course, some of the seismicity is on the fault, but a lot of it is off the fault. Yes. And so when you're correlating, and I, I certainly believe that A minus, I'm sorry, um, B values might correlate with stress, but be careful and not saying all the earthquakes are the same because some of the repeaters, of course, the repeaters, a lot of those are on the San Andreas fault proper. And the mm -hmm. off-fault events, which are often reverse or strike-slip, would be in harder, more velocity-weakening rocks, such as shown by the lab experiments from David and Brett Carpenter and others. So you may be comparing apples and oranges, you know, velocity-weakening um, and stronger high-stress faults off the San Andreas in the central region, and then asperities stuck inside an otherwise creeping and weak fault along the fault. So you may have differences in... Um, in, in mineralogy and stress levels based upon whether or not those earthquakes are on the San Andreas fault or not. 
Yeah, no, that's true. It's interesting. So when, when you say off-fault off events, uh, how how uh, how distant from, from the, you know, well, like, uh, there is a you know, number of people have written about this, Andy Michael, Heidi Houston and others, but they're off-fault events showing a reverse faulting transition to strike slip, slip uh, stress regime, even though the San Andreas is slipping in a strike slip sense. So, uh, you know, up to several hundred meters, others could comment on this more accurately than me. The repeaters, of course, are largely on the fault and surrounded by creeping fault, but there are off-fault events as well. Yeah, that was interesting because I know that uh, Sean Emmer and Vima did, did do a cluster analysis again, so they looked at events that, that uh, uh, were on the fault. But I think if, you, if, if you're talking about things which are within 100 metres of the fault, I'm not sure that they, they were able to resolve. You may uh, not be able to. That it may fall into a cloud that is hard to differentiate. So, exactly. Yeah. 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 No, that's a good point. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Great talk. Yeah, thank you. Okay. So we're going a little bit over. So if you have questions, feel free to stick around. Uh, I think Dan's going to stick around to talk for a little bit, but um, we'll thank him. And then uh, if you have any more questions, just keep them coming. Um, let's see. Uh, Nick, did you have another question? Raise your hand. Uh, still oh, sure. I do. I've always got okay. questions. <laughs> Uh, so this is yeah. So this is a little bit different. So it was this is with regard to the the modeling study that you showed at the end, where um, there was dynamic weakening included in the in the simulations, and it and it produces a, you know a dependence of of B values on the amount of the dynamic weakening. I guess in a way that that makes sense. the the, the thing about those is that the the B values are very very low in those. Um, can yeah. can you comment on that? And is that a reason for thinking in maybe it's a reason for thinking that it's sort of a combination of the two things that, you know, that uh, allowing large events dynamic weekend help helps you, but something ultimately has to stop them, you know, and it's the it's the material properties and the the the, the complexity that's going to stop you as well, so that it, it could be a mix of the, of the dynamic properties and the non-dynamic properties. Yeah, no, I mean that's a that's a really good observation, I think. And um, um, in, in actual fact, we were chatting last week um, uh, about a, a potential follow-up to this too. So um, uh, Valer Lambert and, uh, and Nadia Lapusta, who um, you know obviously did the modelling uh, for this, um, we were discussing why the, the the B values might be so low. Just yeah, I think they probably are a little bit unrealistically low, although. Um, you know the plot of the the, the Parkfield uh, uh, section of the, the San Andreas also shows uh, fairly low uh, B values on the fault uh, as well. But um, um, yeah, we we're discussing possibilities for for why that might be and um, uh, and how to maybe improve the modelling for a, you know a follow up study to to try to to uh, uh, see how much of an effect um, stress might have versus um, uh, uh, dynamic weakening. Yeah. Yeah, those guys are really, really into this kind of stuff. So I, you know, Valerie has done some amazing work as a as a graduate student. So yeah, we're really looking forward to where where this sort of takes us. That you know they they found some you know really unexpected dynamic effects. You know the uh, playoffs between the size of the stress drop and the and the, the stress level in in ways that you just you just can't get at it in the lab at all. So it's really great to see that. That there's somebody in our field that's actually collaborating with these uh, these modelers. So, also looking forward to your dynamic machine to be able to do experiments that uh, can find at the right stress levels and stuff like that. So, anyway. <laughs>
Thanks a lot, Dan. Me too, Nick. <laughs> Uh, we're going to Tom. Talk and FaceTime. Uh, I came late, so I'm sorry I didn't hear the whole talk. Um, but I thought the thing about uh, Steve's remark about all fault seismicity, that's kind of shown in the diagram that shows seismicity and all the Earthquakes, if you could go back to that slide. Sure. Um, let me just share the screen again. Um, okay, so. Um, yeah, that one. No. This one? Uh, 27. Okay. Okay, so um, if you go to B on the right-hand side, mm -hmm. um, the colors indicate the distance from the fault. Okay, so if you're up at Parkfield, all of the aftershocks, or most of them, are occurring on the fault. But down in Southern California, uh, you know, you're dominated by yellow. Well, that's certainly true on the San, uh, San Jacinto. Sure. Um, but also on above or um, north of Cajon Pass, they're mostly yellow as well. And those, those are, you know, as much as three kilometers off the fault. And so that's a measure of the the off-fault seismicity just right there. And I think behind the San Gabriel Mountains, there's actually reverse faulting um, on the faults that are off the San Andreas Fault, but to the southwest. So in between the San Gabriel Mountains and the fault itself. I don't know if this is a help or not, but uh, a lot of the seismicity in Southern California <laughs> is off the, is off the principal fault. Uh, yeah. Now no. that assumes that we know where the fault is at depth, and I'm sure there's um, there that's an open question, at least to a certain extent. Um, but uh, I'm not the one to to comment on that. So at any rate, I just thought I'd point that out. If you have, have any thoughts on it, please do. No, it's, it's, yeah, it's a really good uh, uh, observation, I think, um, there as well. I mean, in the extreme case, if, if most of that seismicity is off fault, um, and we've really got a, a total absence of uh, small events, uh, smaller events uh, on that, um, that southern section, then um, I guess the implication is that that, um, that that seismicity is restricted to uh, very infrequent large events and, and uh, therefore a very low B, B value. Um, I mean, I, I kind of showed this slide, I guess, just to to <laughs> open up some discussion, which uh, I'm glad it has. Um, but I don't really have any answers uh, apart from a suggestion that that um, uh, you know this this uh, part of the fault might be characterised by. Um, 
um, these really infrequent large events, which um, are associated with um, really efficient um, dynamic weakening. Yeah, that just that may be the case. Uh, there's such a difference between the Parkfield segment, which is creeping, and all the seismicities on the fault, <laughs> to the extent we know where it is, yeah. and uh, in very sharp distinction with what's going on in Southern California, or for that matter, anywhere south of Cheyenne. But thanks for pointing that out. That's uh, or including this slide. I I haven't seen that uh, before, so I think that tells you a lot about the the off fault seismicity. Yeah, that's great. I hope that's not a conversation stopper. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> it was a cool talk in many, in many regards, and yeah, Nick said, "But uh, I think it's kind of true that a really good talk generates more questions than answers," and and I think Nick sort of said that. But Nick's Nick's all questions, so give us an answer, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I was, uh, you know, I like to see these studies of uh, of seismicity that try and relate them to, you know, to things that we might be able to measure in the lab. And, uh, you know, B values are a funny thing, um, sort of in general. And the acoustic, you know, all of the studies like the ones that you showed with Schultz, and in, in which the, you know, the, the group, the the Weimar group and all of those people have tried to relate B values to stress levels. They're just, they're really not, it's not really a very good analogy, you know, if you know what I mean. I mean, these, in these lab failures, the, every single thing that they plot in a B value plot is a foreshock, you know, it's a foreshock to the system scale event. And so, you know, and it's a homogeneous like granite or something. So there's a real, there's a real problem in jumping from that into the field and saying, okay, well, we have B value changes and they're related to stress level. It's a completely different system. David can comment on this too. He probably is a more of an advocate for those studies, but the idea that you're taking where you're looking at the, the material, the differences between different materials and how that will affect seismicity. That really is, especially in these induced seismicity cases, is just a really much more powerful way uh, to get leverage on, on, on physically what's going on, I think. That's not an answer either, and it's not a question. It's just a sort of Nick statement about something or other. But in any case, yeah. it, it was a terrific talk touching on so many different things, it's really, you know, you can't expect to have um, answers necessarily, but lots of yeah. great, great observations. Yeah, thanks, Nick. So, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, anybody that's worked in the lab always incessantly gets asked the question is, is you know, how representative are the lab measurements that we make on small samples to, to the larger scale? So, 
Um, you know, this this work is is motivated a little bit to try to 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 see whether we can you know close that circle. I think and and uh, and, and relate some of our predictions from our from our lab experiments to to larger scale observations and, and uh, you know a paper, paper that we <coughs> published last last year on the longitudinal valley fault in Taiwan as well just looked at um, a minus b values um, on the creeping uh, parts of the the longitudinal valley fault uh, with with um, lab measurements of, of, of samples collected uh, from the, the surface trace of the fault too and uh, there was a remarkably good correlation that, again uh, between those two so it does give me hope that that you know all of our time just worrying about little centimeter size experiments in the lab you know it does have some value i think to to uh, 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 larger scale observations of the faulting that we see in nature well since uh, if no one else is chiming in since nick mentioned me again uh, <laughs> I the the whole thing about acoustic emission, you know, catalogs in the lab. It's 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 tricky because we're the distribution of roughness in lab experiments is is funny. You have this pre-ground flat surface with no no roughness until you get down to the grain scale generally and so that has to limit uh, that has to have an influence on on the largest amplitude events that you can see um th there's a funny interaction with that and and the stuff for example when you know i think about uh, on the big block experiments that uh that they did uh, Greg McClaskey did uh, on that very flat, smooth surface. The only way he got intermediate amplitude acoustic emission events was while the, there was background creep going that was driving them. So it's kind of a different beast in some ways. That there, there's. I mean, maybe that's happening in earthquakes too. But uh, I, I, you know, it's it's a there. There is there's something funny going on in the lab to to just automatically scale that up to earthquakes although you're minus two and a half earthquakes those are lab scale events <laughs> I, I don't know so there's uh, but but there is some issue about roughness and the distribution of roughness on the surfaces and, and how that affects b value i think yeah so you really saw kind of bimodal um, um event sizes i guess in, in those lab experiments well i i think from the stuff that I did with Greg on the uh, triaxial machine samples, uh, you know, th those events, the largest events were sort of a centimeter. If you estimate their, the patch size, they're up to a centimeter in a linear dimension. But, you know, the, 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 the bulk of the B value of the small events that are going to define your B value, those are grain size events yeah or smaller so it's, it's just it's it's a little bit funny you, you have to be a little careful I, you know i agonize over that how 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 you go from those events on pre-cut surfaces to yeah to earthquake populations that's interesting though i mean if you're getting centimeter size of events then it is 
is the implication that they're arresting within the I mean they're they're in a much oh. bigger uh, sample right there. yeah no they definitely are in you know this is a three inch diameter sample so they they are arresting on the fault surface and they're great larger than the grain size so they are something that you have a local stress you know high stress region that is being relieved uh, by the frictional properties of the surface, not by breaking an individual grain. I mean, you may nucleate them on an individual grain, but they're yeah. they're being uh, arrested by the properties of the surface. That's, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because I, I would imagine, you know, because the, the, the stress on the surface there is, is relatively close to failure. And uh, you, you, you struggle to think of ways to, to arrest um, uh, an event that's got going um, uh, um, without, with, without roughness or, or without, uh, you know, significant material heterogeneity or, or stress heterogeneity as well. So that's, well, that's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah and, and thinking back on those experiments, when you look at those triaxial experiments, there actually is background creep going on at a low level on the surface as well. So it's not that different than what happens on the two meter uh, fault, that you have some background creep going on that allows you to load these local resistance spots. But, so I don't know, is that what's happening with earthquakes? Nick, <laughs> jump in here. <laughs> I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> I, I try and I try and blot out acoustic emissions altogether when I think about faulting. So, <laughs> so yeah. So my 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 complaint always is, I mentioned earlier, is that you know when you look at when you look at the the lab stuff as an analogous system, everybody everybody uses the data. They use the you know the well defined B value, which runs from very small events up to some large scale, maybe it's a centimeter or maybe it's even less, but they never plot the actual system scale event, which is a couple of order of magnitude larger, or maybe two or three orders of magnitude larger, and is a perfectly char periodic characteristic event. And so if you were to take that system, it's, it's, it's not the same at all. Every single part of the well-defined Gutenberg-Richter relationship is a foreshock to the large event, which you're not plotting and so th the system breaks down at some level and you can't you can't use them without making as david suggests significant corrections to account for the difference in the system you, you can't expect it to apply because it, it's it, you know it's not the analogous system but i do agree that these centimeter scale events that that david and greg saw in uh in the triaxial experiments, those are those are in the sweet spot. That's where you do want to be looking. You want to be looking at things that are larger than the grain size, but that are smaller than the, the system scale event. And that's really where the action is in making an analogous case to, to, to move um, from the lab to the earth. Let me just, I'll say one more thing and I will say absolutely nothing else. And that is again, when it when it comes to to taking taking our lab measurements and taking them out into the field, we do need to be doing what Dan is doing, which is collaborating with people like Nadia and and Valerie Lambert. They can take it up in scale, and they know how to do it, and they're open, you know, to taking things 
that David might say about roughness and actually implementing them. And that is really the, the, the power of where we need to be going in, in the lab is to be collaborating with people that can do those kind of things. So um, let's all be like Dan, I think, is what we should be doing. What a terrible thought. <laughs> um, Steve, you had another question? Yeah, I, I typed it in and I, I realized we're into the hardcore now. Um, I find your observation, Dan, fascinating that these B values and what you identified as fracturing events that did not associate with discrete fault planes are higher. And so I, I took that to indicate that these are fresh fractures or relatively small displacement pre-existing faults that are roughness inherited from their geologic history or they're brand new in their pure mode one. If so, the high B value for those fracturing events makes sense as as you know, failure of rough surfaces, you know, where you have a tensile fracture and you have a lot of surface roughness at long wavelengths, whereas the reactivation of pre-existing faults, especially in the basement or in the reservoir rocks, having low B values is consistent with more mature faulting where slip has smoothed off surface roughness. And do you agree with that statement? And it seems to me that's consistent with your um, statements that we've just been discussing, uh, surface roughness controlling B values as a proxy for fault maturity. The more mature a fault, the smoother it becomes over wavelengths comparable to its slip. So what do you, is, is that your view of this as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, um, you know, those, those kind of matrix events or, or fracturing events, uh, if, uh, you know, if they're happening on, on relatively small uh, fracture surfaces or, or very rough fracture surfaces, they're not gonna be able to travel uh, they're not going to be able to propagate very far, which is going to give you give you lots of uh, small events and, and a high B value. Um, so yeah, that's exactly the way that, that, that I kind of view that too. And um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of questions. That, um, well, a lot of debate in the literature about um, how the the roughness of faults evolves with slip. And and uh, you know, there's the uh, Thibaut uh, Candela paper with uh, Francois Renard and others in 2009, which suggests that over nine orders of magnitude, there's a there's a Hurst exponent which is uh, uh, you know characterizes fault roughness right the way along there. I guess having a Hurst exponent less than one does tell you that uh, on, on longer wavelengths that you do have a, a slightly smoother fault. And it becomes highly uh, anisotropic, of course, as well. Sorry. And it becomes anisotropic. Smoother yes. in the slip direction than orthogonal to it. So yes, yeah. yes, that's right. Yeah. So so I don't know I, um, whether. I mean, conceptually, I always find that difficult. I feel feel that that more mature faults have to become uh, smoother in, in some way as well, and that will allow bigger events to 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 propagate, as it, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Thank you. Mm. Okay, so we're coming up on noon here. So I think, Susan, we can at least uh, stop recording and uh, people want to stick around, they can stick around. Um.